This is an audio version of Crucial Considerations and Wise Philanthropy, an abridged transcript of a 2014 talk given by Nick Bostrom. You can check out the original by following the link in the podcast description. Heading. What is a crucial consideration? So I want to talk about this concept of a crucial consideration, which comes up in the work that we're doing a lot. Suppose you're out in the forest and you have a map and a compass and you're trying to find some destination. You're carrying some weight. Maybe you have a lot of water because you need to hydrate yourself to reach your goal and carry weight and trying to fine-tune the exact direction you're going. You're trying to figure out how much water you can pour out to lighten your load without having too little to reach your destination. All of these are normal considerations. You're fine-tuning the way you're going to make more rapid progress towards your goal. But then you look more closely at this compass that you've been using, and you realise that the magnet part has actually come loose. This means that the needle might now be pointing in a completely different direction that bears no relation to north. It might have rotated some unknown number of laps or parts of a lap. With this discovery, you now completely lose confidence in all the earlier reasoning that was based on trying to get the more accurate reading of where the needle was pointing. This would be an example of a crucial consideration in the context of orienteering. The idea is that there could be similar types of consideration in more important contexts that throw us off completely. So a crucial consideration is a consideration such that if it were taken into account, it would overturn the conclusions we would otherwise reach about how we should direct our efforts, or an idea or argument that might possibly reveal the need, not just for some minor course adjustment in our practical endeavours, but a major change of direction or priority. Within a utilitarian context, one can perhaps try to explicate it as follows. A crucial consideration is a consideration that radically changes the expected value of pursuing some high-level sub-goal. The idea here is that you have some evaluation standard that is fixed and you form some overall plan to achieve some high-level sub-goal. This is your idea of how to maximise this evaluation standard. A crucial consideration, then, would be a consideration that radically changes the expected value of achieving this sub-goal. And we will see some examples of this. Now, if you stop limiting your view to some utilitarian context, then you might want to retreat to these earlier, more informal formulations. Because one of the things that could be questioned is utilitarianism itself. But for most of this talk, we will be thinking about that component. There are some related concepts that are useful to have. So a crucial consideration component will be an argument, idea or datum which, while not on its own amounting to a crucial consideration, seems to have a substantial probability of maybe being able to serve a central role within a crucial consideration. It's the kind of thing of which we would say, this looks really intriguing, this could be important, I'm not really sure what to make of it at the moment. On its own, maybe it doesn't tell us anything, but maybe there's another piece that, when combined, 
will somehow yield an important result. So those kinds of crucial consideration components could be useful to discover. Then there's the concept of a deliberation ladder, which would be a sequence of crucial considerations regarding the same high-level subgoal, where the considerations hold in opposing directions. Let's look at some examples of these kinds of crucial consideration ladders that help to illustrate the general predicament. Heading. Should I vote in the national election? Let's take this question. Should I vote in the national election? At the sort of level one of reasoning, you think, yes, I should vote to put a better candidate in office. This clearly makes sense. Then you reflect some more. But my vote is extremely unlikely to make a difference. I should not vote, but put my time to better use. These examples are meant to illustrate the general idea. It's not so much I want a big discussion as to these particular examples. They're complicated. But I think they will serve to illustrate the general phenomenon. So here we have gone from, yes, we should vote, making a plan to get to the polling booth, etc. And then with the consideration number two, we switch to, no, I should not vote. I should do something completely different. Well, then you think, well... Although it's unlikely that my vote will make a difference, the stakes are very high. Millions of lives are affected by the president. So even if the chance that my vote will be decisive is one in several million, the expected benefit is still large enough to be worth a trip to the polling station. I'd just gone back to the television and turned on the football game, but now it turns out I should vote, so we have a reversed direction. Then you continue to think, well... If the election is not close, then my vote will make no difference. If the election is close, then approximately half of the votes will be for the wrong candidate, implying either that the candidates are exactly or almost exactly of the same merit, so it doesn't really matter who wins, or typical voters' judgment of the candidates' merits is extremely unreliable and carries almost no signal, so I should not bother to vote. Now you sink back into the comfy sofa and bring out the popcorn or whatever. And then you think, oh, well, of course, I'm a much better judge of the candidate's merits than the typical voter, so I should vote. And then you think, well, but psychological studies show that people tend to be overconfident. Almost everybody believes themselves to be above average, but they are as likely to be wrong as right about that. If I am as likely to vote for the wrong candidate as the typical voter, then my vote would have negligible information to the selection process, and I should not vote. Then we go on. Okay, I've gone through all this reasoning. That really means I'm special, so I should vote. But then, well, if I'm so special, then the opportunity cost... This is why I warned you all against becoming philosophers. So, I should do something more important. But if I don't vote, my acquaintances will see that I have failed to support the candidates that we all think are best. They would think me weird and strange and disloyal. Then that would maybe diminish my influence, which I could otherwise have used for good ends. So I should vote after all. But it's important to stand up for one's convictions to stimulate fruitful discussion. They might think that I'm really sophisticated if I explain all this complicated reasoning for voting and that might increase my influence, which I can then invest in some good cause. Etc, etc, etc. 
There is no reason to think that the ladder would stop there. It's just that we ran out of steam at that point. If you end at some point, you might then wonder, maybe there are further steps on the ladder. How much reason do you really think you have for the conclusion you've temporarily reached at that stage? Heading. Should we favour more funding for X-Risk tech research? Podcast note. X-Risk is a shortening of existential risk. I want to look at one other example of a deliberation ladder more in the context of technology policy and X-Risk. This is a kind of argument that can be run with regard to certain types of technologies, whether we should try to promote them or get more funding for them. The technology here is nanotechnology. This is, in fact, the example where this line of reasoning originally came up. Some parts of this harken back to Eric Drexler's book Engines of Creation where he actually advocated this line of thinking in chapter 12. So we should fund nanotechnology. This is the level one reasoning. Because there are many potential future applications. Medicine, manufacturing, clean energy, etc. It would be really great if we had all those benefits. But it also looks like nanotechnology could have important military applications and it could be used by terrorists, etc., to create new weapons of mass destruction that could pose a major existential threat. If it's so dangerous, maybe we shouldn't really fund it. But if this kind of technology is possible, it will almost certainly be developed sooner or later, whether or not we decide to pursue it. We being maybe the people in this room, or the people in Britain, or other Western democracies. If responsible people refrain from developing it, then it will be developed by irresponsible people, which would make the risks even greater. So we should fund it. You can see that the same template could be relevant for evaluating other technologies with upsides and downsides besides nanotechnology. But we are already ahead in its development, so extra funding would only get us there sooner, leaving us less time to prepare for the dangers. So we should not add funding. The responsible people can get there first even without adding funding to this endeavour. But then you look around and see virtually no serious effort to prepare for the dangers of nanotechnology. And this is basically Drexler's point back in Engines. Because serious preparation will begin only after a massive project is already underway to develop nanotechnology. Only then will people take the prospect seriously. The earlier a serious, Manhattan-like project to develop nanotechnology is initiated, the longer it will take to complete, because the earlier you start, the lower the foundation from which you begin. The actual project will then run for longer, and that will then mean more time for preparation. Serious preparation only starts when the project starts, and the sooner the project starts, the longer it will take, so the longer the preparation time will be. And that suggests that we should push as hard as we can to get this product launched immediately, to maximise time for preparation. But there are more considerations that should be taken into account. The level of risk will be affected by factors other than the amount of serious preparation that has been made, specifically to counter the threat from nanotechnology. For instance, machine intelligence or ubiquitous surveillance might be developed before nanotechnology eliminating or mitigating the risks of the latter. Although these other technologies may pose great risks of their own, those risks would have to be faced anyway. And there's a lot more that can be said.
nanotechnology would not really reduce these other risks, like the risks from AI, for example. The preferred sequence is that we get superintelligence or ubiquitous surveillance before nanotechnology. And so we should oppose extra funding for nanotechnology, even though superintelligence and ubiquitous surveillance might be very dangerous on their own, including posing existential risk. Given certain background assumptions about the technological completion conjecture, that in the fullness of time, unless civilization collapses, all possible general useful technologies will be developed. These dangers will have to be confronted, and all our choice really concerns is the sequence in which we confront them. And it's better to confront superintelligence before nanotechnology, because superintelligence can obviate the nanotechnology risk, but not vice versa. However, if people oppose extra funding for nanotechnology, then people working in nanotechnology will dislike those people who are opposing it. This is also a point from Drexler's book. But other scientists might regard these people who oppose funding for nanotechnology as being anti-science, and this will reduce our ability to work with these scientists, hampering our efforts on more specific issues. Efforts that stand a better chance of making a material difference to any attempt on our part to influence the level of national funding for nanotechnology. So we should not oppose nanotechnology. That is, rather than opposing nanotechnology, we may try to slow it down a little bit, but we are a small group and we can't make a big difference. We should work with the nanotechnology scientists, be their friends, and then maybe try to influence on the margin so that they develop nanotechnology in a slightly different way or add some safeguards and stuff like that. Again, there is no clear reason to think that we have reached the limit of the level of deliberation that we could apply to this. It's disconcerting because it looks like the practical upshot keeps switching back and forth as we look more deeply into the search tree. And we might wonder why this is so. I think that these deliberation ladders are particularly likely to turn up when one is trying to be a thoroughgoing utilitarian and really take the big picture questions seriously. Heading. Crucial considerations and utilitarianism. Let's consider some possible reasons for why that might be. If we compare, for example, the domain of application of utilitarianism to another domain of application, Say if you have an ordinary human preference function. You want a flourishing life, like a healthy family, a successful career and some relaxation, like typical human values. If you're trying to satisfy those, it looks less likely that you will encounter a large number of these crucial considerations. Why might that be? One possible explanation is that we have more knowledge and experience of human life at the personal level. Billions of people have tried to maximize an ordinary human utility function and have received a lot of feedback and a lot of things have been tried out. So I already know some of the basics, like if you want to go on for decades, it's a good idea to eat. Things like that. They're not something we need to discover, and maybe our preferences in the first place have been shaped to more or less fit the kind of opportunities we can cognitively exploit in the environment by evolution. So we might not have some weird preference that there was no way that we could systematically satisfy. Whereas with utilitarianism, the utilitarian preference extends far and wide beyond our familiar environment, including into the cosmic commons, 
and billions of years into the future and super-advanced civilizations. What they do matters from the utilitarian perspective and matters a lot. Most of what the utilitarian preference cares about is stuff that we have no familiarity with. Another possible source of crucial considerations with regard to utilitarianism is difficulties in understanding the goal itself. For example, if one tries to think about how to apply utilitarianism to a world that has a finite probability of being infinite, one will run into difficulties in terms of how to measure different infinite magnitudes and still seeing how we could possibly make any difference to the world. I have a big paper about that, and we don't need to go into it. Podcast note, that's a paper called Infinite Ethics. There are some other issues that consist in actually trying to articulate utilitarianism to deal with all these possible cases. The third possible reason here is that one might think that we are kind of close, not super close, but close to some pivot point in history. That means we might have special opportunities to influence the long-term future now. And we're still far away from this. It's not obvious what we should do to have the maximally beneficial impact on the future. But we're still close enough that we can maybe begin to perceive some contours of the apparatus that will shape the future. For example, you may think that superintelligence might be this pivot point, or one of them. There may be X-risk pivot points as well that we will confront in this century. In that case, it might just be that we are barely just beginning to get the ability to think about those things, which introduces a whole set of new considerations that might be very important. This could affect the personal domain as well. It's just like with an ordinary person's typical utility function. They probably don't place a million times more value on living for a billion years than living for a hundred years or a thousand times more value on raising a thousand children than on raising one child. So even though the future still exists, it just doesn't weigh as heavily in a normal human utility function as it does for utilitarians. Fourthly, one might also argue that we have recently discovered some key exploration tools that enable us to make these very important discoveries about how to be a good utilitarian. And we haven't yet run the course with these tools, so we keep turning up like fundamental new important discoveries using these exploration tools. That's why there seem to be so many crucial considerations being discovered. There's a section here called Evaluation Functions. It's been abridged out for this recording, but if you'd like to read it, you can follow the link in the podcast description. Heading. Some tentative signposts. Here are some very tentative signposts. They're tentative in my own view, and I guess there might also be a lot of disagreement among different people. So these are more like areas for investigation, but it might be useful just to show how one might begin to think about it. Here's a table, some very tentative signposts. So in the first column we have some potential technologies, they all have question marks after them because they're asking the question, should we fund or develop or further this technology? Then on the next column, we have no or yes, and some of them have question marks. So I'll read them all out. Computer hardware? No. Whole brain emulation? No. Question mark. Biological cognitive enhancement? 
Yes. Artificial intelligence? No. Lead of AI frontrunner? Yes. Solutions to the control problem? Yes. Effective altruism movement? Yes. International peace and cooperation? Yes. Synthetic biology? No. Question mark? Nanotechnology? No. Economic growth? Question mark. Small and medium scale catastrophe prevention? Question mark. Here the text resumes. Do we want faster progress in computer hardware or slower progress? My best guess there is we want slower progress. And that has to do with the risks from the machine intelligence transition. Faster computers would make it easier to make AI, which A, would make them happen sooner probably, which seems perhaps bad in itself because it leaves less time for the relevant kind of preparation, of which there is a great need. And B, might reduce the skill level that would be required to produce AI. With a ridiculously large amount of computing power, you might be able to produce AI without really knowing much about what you're doing. When you are hardware constrained, you might need more insight and understanding, and it's better that AI be created by people who have more insight and understanding. This is not, by any means, a knockdown argument, because there are other existential risks. If you thought that we are about to go extinct anytime soon, because somebody will develop nanotechnology, then you might want to sort of try the AI wildcard as soon as possible. But all things considered, this is my current best guess. These are the kinds of reasoning that one can engage in. Whole brain emulation? We did a long, big analysis of that. Podcast note, this is the paper, Whole Brain Emulation, A Roadmap. More specifically, not whether we want to have whole brain emulation, but whether we want to have more or less funding for whole brain emulation, more or fewer resources for developing that. This is one possible path towards machine superintelligence, and for complicated reasons, my guess is no. But that's even more uncertain, and we have a lot of different views in our research group on that. Biological cognitive enhancement of humans? My best guess there is we want faster progress in that area. So with these three, I talk more about them in the book. Podcast note, Superintelligence, Bostrom's bestseller from 2014. And AI as well. AI. I think we want AI probably to happen a little bit slower than it's likely to do by default. Another question is, if there is one company or project or team that will develop the first successful AI, how much ahead does one want that team to be to the second team that is trying to do it? My best guess is that we want it to have a lot of lead, many years ideally, to enable them to slow down at the end to implement more safety measures rather than being in the tight tech race. Solutions to the control problem for AI? I think we want faster progress in that, and that's one of our focus areas. And some of our friends from the Machine Intelligence Research Institute are here, also working hard on that. The effective altruism movement? I think that looks very good in many ways, robustly good, to have faster, better growth in that. International peace and cooperation? 
looks good. Synthetic biology? I think it looks bad. We haven't thought as carefully about that, so that could change. But it looks like there could be X risks from that, although it may also be beneficial. Insofar as it might enable improvements in cognitive enhancement, there'll be a kind of difficult trade-off. Nanotechnology? I think it looks bad. We want slower progress towards that. Economic growth? Very difficult to tell the sign of that, in my view. And within a community of people who have thought hard about that are, again, different guesses as to the sign of that. Podcast note, by the sign of that, Bostrom is referring to whether it's a positive or a negative thing to have more of it or more progress or more funding of that particular thing. Small and medium-scale catastrophe prevention? Also looks good. So, global catastrophic risks, falling short of existential risk. Again, very difficult to know the sign of that. Here, we are bracketing leverage at all, even just knowing whether we would want more or less. If we could get it for free, it's non-obvious. On the one hand, small-scale catastrophes might create an immune response that makes us better, puts in place better safeguards, and stuff like that. That could protect us from the big stuff. If we're thinking about medium-scale catastrophes that could cause civilizational collapse, large by ordinary standards but only medium-scale in comparison to existential catastrophes, which are large in this context, again, it is not totally obvious what the sign of that is. There's a lot more work to be done to try to figure that out. If recovery looks very likely, you might then have guesses as to whether the recovered civilization would be more likely to avoid existential catastrophe having gone through this experience or not. So, these are the parameters that one can begin to think about. One doesn't realise just how difficult it is. Even some parameters, that from an ordinary common-sense point of view, seem kind of obvious, actually turn out to be quite non-obvious once you start to think through the way that they're all supposed to fit together. Suppose you're an administrator here in Oxford, you're working in the computer science department and you're the secretary there. Suppose you find some way to make the department run slightly more efficiently. You create this mailing list so that everybody can, when they have an announcement to make, just email it to the mailing list rather than having to put in each person individually in the address field. And that's a useful thing. That's a great thing. It didn't cost anything other than one-off cost. And now everybody can go about their business more easily. From this perspective, it's very non-obvious whether that is in fact a good thing. It might be contributing to AI. That might be the main effect of this, other than the very small general effect on economic growth. And it might probably be that you have made the world worse in expectation by making this little efficiency improvement. So this project of trying to think through this, it's in a sense a little bit like the Nietzschean Umwertung aller Werte the revaluation of all values project that he never had a chance to complete because he went mad before. Heading. Possible areas with additional crucial considerations. So these are some kinds of areas. I'm not going to go into all of these. I'm just giving examples of the kinds of areas where today it looks like there might still be crucial considerations. This is not an exhaustive list by any means. And we can talk more about some of those. They kind of go from more general and abstract and powerful to more specific and understandable by ordinary reasoning.
Here's an image of a PowerPoint slide. List of some areas with candidate remaining CCs or CCCs. These are all short bullet points. They're in three main groups. The first group. Counterfactual trade. Simulation stuff. Infinite paralysis. Pascalian muggings. Different kinds of aggregative ethics. Total, average, negative. Information hazards. And the second group. Aliens. Baby universes. Other kinds of moral uncertainty. Other game theory stuff. The last group. Pessimistic meta-induction. Epistemic humility. Anthropics. Insects. Subroutines. That's the end of the slide. To just pick an example. Insects. If you are a classical utilitarian, this consideration arises within the more mundane. We're setting aside the cosmological commons and just thinking about here on Earth. If insects are sentient, then maybe the amount of sentience in insects is very large because there are so very, very many of them. So that maybe the effect of our policies on insect well-being might trump the effect of our policies on human well-being or animals in factories and stuff like that. I'm not saying it does, but it's a question that is non-obvious and that could have a big impact. Or take another example. Subroutines. With certain kinds of machine intelligence, there are processes, like reinforcement learning algorithms, and other sub-processes within the AI that could turn out to have moral status in some way. Maybe there will be hugely large numbers of runs on these sub-processes. So that if it turns out that some of these kinds of things count for something, then maybe the numbers again would come to dominate. Heading. Some partial remedies. Each of these is a whole workshop on its own, so it's not something we can go into. But what can one do if one suspects that there might be these crucial considerations, some of them not yet discovered? I don't have a crisp answer to that. Here are some prima facie, plausible things one might try to do a little bit of. Here's a list. First bullet point. Don't act precipitously, particularly in ways that are irrevocable. Next bullet point. Invest in more analysis to find and assemble missing crucial considerations. That's why I'm doing the kind of work that I'm doing, and the rest of us are also involved in that enterprise. Bullet point. Take into account that expected value changes are probably smaller than they appear. If you are a utilitarian, let's say you think of this new argument that has this radical implication for what you should be doing. The first instinct might be to radically change your expected utility of different practical policies in light of this new insight. But maybe when you reflect on the fact that there are new crucial considerations being discovered every once in a while, Maybe you should still change your expected value, but not as much as it seems you should the first time. You should reflect on this at the meta level. Another bullet point. Take into account fundamental moral uncertainty. If we widen our purview to not just consider utilitarianism, as we should consider things from a more general, unrestricted normative perspective, then something like the parliamentary model for taking normative uncertainty into account, looks fairly robust. 
This is the idea that if you are unsure as to which moral theory is true, then you should assign probabilities to different moral theories and imagine that there were a parliament where each moral theory got to send delegates to that parliament in proportion to their probability. Then in this imaginary parliament, these delegates from the different moral theories discuss and compromise and work out what to do. And then you should do what that moral parliament of yours would have decided as a sort of metaphor. The idea is that other things equal, the more probability a moral theory has, the greater its say in determining your actions. But there might also be these trades between different moral theories, which I think Toby Ord talked about in his presentation. This is one metaphor for how to conceive of those traits. It might not be exactly the right way to think about fundamental normative uncertainty, but it seems to be close in many situations, and it seems to be relatively robust in the sense of being unlikely to have a totally crazy implication. Next bullet point. Focus more on near-term and convenient objectives. To the extent that one is despairing about having any coherent view about how to go about maximizing aggregative welfare in this cosmological context, the greater it seems the effective voice of other types of things that one might be placing weight. So, if you're partly an egoist and partly an altruist, then if you say that the altruistic component is on this kind of deliberation ladder, then maybe you should go more with the egoistic part until and unless you can find stability in your altruistic deliberations. Final bullet point. Focus on developing our capacity as a civilization to wisely deliberate on these types of things. To build up our capacity, rather than pursuing very specific goals, and by capacity in this context it looks like perhaps we should focus less on powers and more on the propensity to use powers as well. This is still quite vague but something in that general direction seems to be robustly desirable. Certainly, you could have a crucial consideration that's turned up to show that that was the wrong thing to do, but it still looks like a reasonable guess. And that's the end of the talk. That was an audio version of Crucial Considerations and Wise Philanthropy, an abridged transcript of a 2014 talk by Nick Bostrom. You can check out the original transcript and the original noisy recording in the podcast description. This reading was by Perrin Walker. Radio Bostrom is run by Peter Hartree and supported by a grant from the Future Fund regranting program. You can find more episodes and subscribe at radiobostrom.com. If you like these recordings, please support our work by sharing these episodes with your friends.